Great. Oh, it's good to be with you. It's good to, good to have everybody here. Um, I wanna, what we're going to do is, I'm gonna, I don't want to talk uninterrupted for very long. Um, so what I'm going to try and do is to sort of, for me to make a few comments or a few ways of thinking about some of the scientific and biblical issues that collide when it comes to Genesis and particularly the beginning of Genesis. And I'll make a few points and then I'll get you to talk about it on your tables and then make a few more points and get you to talk about that. And we're going to show a little just eight minute video clip, which I think is really helpful on thinking about the Bible through the eyes of ancient people. And then we'll do a tiny bit more talking and then we'll have questions. So the questions are sort of bunched at the end. And if you don't have any questions, that's fine. If I just say, any questions on Genesis, any controversies, then one goes, no, it's all perfectly clear. And we all leave in 40 minutes, then wonderful. But um, I imagine that may not happen. And if it doesn't, we've got two roving mics that we're going to have drifting around to try and pick up the questions. So that's where we're, where we're going. Um, and we're going to just go to walk through some slides again. So at the end of the evening, we'll put the recording and the PDF of the slides up on the website so you can have a look to them if, if it would help you. So... Here's something that Christians don't disagree about. I'm, I'm assuming here that there are that the, the general consensus in the room, there'll be people here who are not believers in Jesus yet, but most of us probably are, and most of us probably trust the Bible, and most of us probably know that on some issues, the Bible seems to collide with some of the things that are said in modern science. That's, I'm assuming most of us are already there, and that's why we're here. But one of the things that Christians do not disagree about, and in fact, not just Christians, is we all believe in creation. So first page, all Christians everywhere believe in creation. Right? This is not up for debates. Uh, I believe in God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's the first line of the creed. That's, if you're a Christian, you believe in creation. A quote that really helped me years back, uh, a guy writing a book on why he thinks you should be an evolutionist and a, an evangelical Christian And he wrote, all Christians are, by definition, creationists. And I thought, I'd never heard anyone say that before. I just thought, oh yeah, that's obviously true. If you believe in God, you believe that God created the world, you can't be a Christian if you don't, really. Because Christianity is about God creating the world out of nothing. That's where we start. And obviously, what it helped me with was it made me realize, oh, I until now have operated with a paradigm where you have creation at one end, and evolution at the other ends. And I don't think that's the right paradigm. I don't think that's quite the scale. That The more creation you have, the less evolution you have, and vice versa. That's not necessarily true. And that helped me. But Christians, in other words, I think if you are a Christian here today, whatever your view of how you integrate science and faith, you are a creationist in that sense. You believe in creation. And I think that's worth stating about what creation is. Next one is evolution. That's a more controversial word, but I just want to say a little bit about that word too, because it'll come up tonight, whatever we believe about it. Evolution can mean at least five different things. It can mean something that has nothing to do with science. It can mean just change over time. If I said the evolution of multi-site at Kings or something, that makes sense, right? It means change over time. Like, well, we evolved into this. That's got nothing to do with genes or natural selection or Darwin or anything, right? So it can mean that. It can mean what most of us learn in school, genetic mutation mixed with natural selection. As in every generation, genes have little quirks and they get passed on with changes. And most of those changes are bad and therefore they get lost. But some of them occasionally might be good. And so the benefits of those changes are then preserved in the population because 
when, you know the thing about the Arctic and the desert foxes? You do that at school? Some of us went to school. I'm looking now, younger, right? It's just so funny because anybody over the age of 40 is like, school, I, I really don't know what that is. Foxes, what are you talking about? When you're at school, probably, you heard the classic example of evolution in one example is, well, you have an Arctic fox, and it has tiny ears and thick fur, and it thrives in the Arctic. And then you have a desert fox with massive ears and no fur, and it thrives in the desert. And it doesn't take much to recognize that if you were to breed them against one another in the other one's environment, that the one who's adapted to their environment would win and have more offspring, more foxes. Right? That, I, I take that to be just common sense, sort of obvious, even though people didn't really know that until 150 years back. I'm just assuming that's true, and that could be what evolution means. And if that's what evolution means, it's probably not controversial. Things get a little bit more dicey the further down the chart you go, because then some people would say, well, that happens, but it only happens within a particular species. And some people would use the word microevolution for that. They'd say, so dogs, you can breed enormous dogs with very small dogs, even though there's Let's not get into it, but some biological weirdnesses about that. But you can take gene, you can, you can take the, let's not go into it, but you can do it. You can breed dogs, let's not draw a picture or anything. But, even, but what you can't do is turn them from a dog into something that's not a dog. So some people would say evolution happens, but it happens within a species and doesn't happen beyond it. Then you've got another word that people would use to say macroevolution might be a word people use for the process of tiny, tiny, very simple things like an amoeba evolving over millions and millions of years, billions of years, in fact, into very complicated creatures like you. And some people would say microevolution does happen and, and macroevolution doesn't. So those are two other variants on the word. That, that's what the word might mean. And then the final thing that the word is sometimes taken to mean is if you believe in evolution, you don't believe in God. Evolution is materialism, is atheism. And in that sense, you'd say, well, that's obviously incompatible with Christianity. So the top of the chart, I'm saying, well, if evolution means the first two things, I think that's just true. If evolution means the last one, I think that's just false. And we might look a little bit at whether it means the third or fourth ones as we go. But I just wanted to introduce those two big terms, creation and evolution, just so it's clear, at least to you, what I think they mean as we're talking tonight. And hopefully that will help some of us for whom there might be you know, complexity around some of those terms and confusion. So here's a few things then we agree on. I think as, certainly as a Bible-believing Christian, I think we would agree on. And obviously, if you come in from a different position, and terms of, actually, I don't accept the authority of the Bible. I want to ask some more questions like that. We definitely want to take those questions as well. It'd be great to talk about that. But if you do share that assumption, and most of us do here, uh, there's some agreement on some big things. God created all things out of nothing. Life is a gift of God and not an accident. Right? All Christians believe that. You might have, we, if we were to line up the people in this room, there would be people at one end who, to whom it almost would never occur to them that evolution didn't happen. And people at the other end, it would almost never occur to them that evolution has happened. You'd have a big, in this room, I know some of you, and I know there would be big diversity on that. But everybody in this room, if you're a Christian, would agree that life is a gift of God and not an accident. And that humans are created in the image of God and that creation is now, Paul says, subjected to futility. It is not what it one day will be. It's going to be liberated from this. And it's not there yet. And that human death is in the world because of sin. And actually that the flood, if we come to the flood, was an act of divine judgment. Those things would be agreed upon by Bible-believing Christians, whatever model we use. But there's also disagreement on some of these things. 
Is the earth as old as it looks? If not, why does it look so old? If so, how do we read Genesis 1? Yeah, some of you got that question. Let's do a little clapometer, right? Who came here with that question? Oh, not many, not many. Uh, the clapometer means you have, to, you, have to, you have to clap if that's your question, okay? Have you never, do we not do clapometers at King's London? I use them all the time when I'm teaching that. Okay, how many people have that question? Okay, still not very many, okay? Did animals die before human beings fell? And so what? Anybody have that question? Do all creatures share common ancestry? As in, are you and, I actually, let's be provocative, are you and the banana? descended from the same original life form, okay? If not, what do you do with genetic evidence that indicates that there are connections between different branches of the animal tree that look like you're related? And if so, how do you read Genesis 2 to 3? So how, anybody come here with that question? So an awful lot of you are going to clap at the end when I say, how many people came here with no questions? Which is great. <laughs> so we're just like, off we go. Um, was the flood global or regional? Anyone have that, comment? That, have that question? Okay. And how many people here, no questions at all? Or No, actually, how many people here, a question that's not on that list or even remotely related to that list? Ah, the trouble, I see. This will be great. Okay. So, but those are some starters for 10, just to get you thinking. Okay. So, have a quick little discussion on the line, particularly the people who just clapped on that last one. Just on your tables, right, two minutes. If you haven't already met everybody, say hi, and then say, okay, if I came with a question, mine's kind of this, all right? Just say hello, this is my question. Okay, we will come back to that in a few minutes. And if nothing else, that just breaks up the flow and enables some of us to fan ourselves from the immense heat and uh, I love that Neil Glanville, who is just one of the chunkiest, most manly-looking men in the room, is sitting there with a fan, just waving away. Very impressive. Um, so, a few, just, just, a, just a line-up. Um, and this is a little bit of help. Let's just skip the next one. And, and we'll go straight, to, gonna go straight to Rudyard Kipling, right? Whatever you think of Kipling... He has a nice little poem where he says, I, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. And I always like it as a way of dividing a problem. Like just Those are six questions you're always going to want to know the answer to uh, when you come to almost anything you don't know. What is creation? Well, there's agreement on that. Creation is really it's a, it's a place for the glory of God. It's a temple. It's a place where God lives. It's a house for God. Why does creation exist? Well, there's agreement on that as well. It exists to the glory of God. It exists so that God can overflow in his love and creativity and place creatures that look like him and fill it with his glory. When did creation happen? That's a question mark for a lot of people. Right? That's one of the things we will come to in a second. How did it happen? That's a question mark too. What's the process? Not just how long, but physically how did it happen? And where, you might say where is like, well, like right here on the earth, but actually there would be quite a lot of discussion about whether or not for instance, Genesis 1 refers to the whole world, or whether it refers to Mesopotamia, or whether it refers to the land of Israel, or whatever. So actually the scope, and the same is true of the flood, of course. Like, what's the area that's flooded? Is it just Mesopotamia? Is it Israel? Is it the world? Because the Hebrew word eretz, which means land or earth, doesn't distinguish really between the globe. They didn't know it was a globe. And we'll talk more about that later. 
So they didn't distinguish between the globe and the land they knew. So where is it? Well, that's a question too. But then the who is settled. Father, Son, and Spirit. God. God in three persons. God is the God of creation. So three of the, we've got three things which are pretty clear and three things which aren't. So we need to look at the things which aren't, or at least I assume that's why you came. So this is a table, next one, that gives some three major models for thinking about this. Now, some of you immediately looking at that chart will rule out some or other of the columns, and some of you will be more open to all three of them. And some of you will say, and the funny, funny thing is, I won't do it because the clapometer wouldn't work because people would start throwing things at each other. But because I've done this a lot of times before with different groups, I know that some of you would rule out the column that the other one thinks is obviously true. And that would happen to some of us, not all of us. So here's three different models for thinking about the answers to those questions that we, we still don't know the answer to. How old is the earth? So young earth creationism would be the view that the earth is about six, 6 to 10,000 years old. Some people would say just six, and some people would say, well, there's room for it to be a little bit older, but really not much. And that a, a day, yom is the Hebrew word for day, that a day in Genesis lasts 24 hours in Genesis 1. And the reason why the earth looks old probably is because of the damage caused by the flood and the complete change and upheaval to the earth's surface happened there. Life is six to 10,000 years old. Was there death before the fall? No. Do we have shared ancestry with other creatures? No. Were there other humans around at the time that Adam and Eve were created? No. And the scope of the flood was global. Now that is not necessarily does everyone who believes one of those things believe them all, but generally they come as a package. Okay? And we'll, there's some, there'll be resources at the end. I'll put up a page of resources that sort of defend and argue for all of these positions. Okay? But that's a... That's reasonably coherent camp, right? That group generally would answer those questions that way. It doesn't mean it's right. I'm not going to tell you what I think is right at this point, but that's, that's one, of the, one of the ways of doing it. The second way is you have old earth creationism, which is different in the sense that they think the earth is much older, but it's similar in the sense that they don't think that God used evolution to do it. All right? So an old earth creationist would say, the earth is 4.6 billion years old, and the universe is 13.7 billion years old. It's way, way older than a young earth creationist would say, which is a massive difference. But actually, on some things, might be more similar. They would say, well, a day in Genesis 1 is just a period of time. So they were like in, the, in Henry VIII's day. And there's a case. You, you can do that in Hebrew sometimes. That, that happens in Hebrew like in English. So they'd say that's a long period of time. Why does it look old? Because it is, they would say. Was there death before the fall of animals? They'd say Yes. Was there shared ancestry? Do we all go back to one common ancestor? They'd say no. Were there other humans around at the time of Adam and Eve? They would, I put in brackets, but probably they would say no. Some would say yes. And, is, and what's the scope of the flood? They'd say it's probably a regional flood. Again, probably. Some of them would say it's global. So that would be a second reasonably consistent camp of group of views. And then the third view would be evolutionary creationism, which might sound like a strange phrase to some of us, because as I said, some of us are used to thinking evolution, creation, opposite ends of a spectrum. But actually, a great many Christians would, who would argue for evolution are saying, no, I'm a creationist, I just think that's how God did it. And they would agree with the old earth people about the age of the earth. But funnily enough, they'd often agree with the young earth people about how long a day is in Genesis 1. But they just read the text quite differently and say it isn't meant to be in a chronological order. Why does it look old? They say, because it is. 
How old is life? They'd say 3.8 billion years or there or thereabouts, according to what you know, scientific models we have. Was there death before the fall of animals? They'd say yes. Are, do we all trace our ancestry back through the same route, humans along with other creatures? They'd say yes. And were there other humans around at the time of Adam and Eve? They'd say yes. And what's the scope of the floods? They'd say it's regional. Now those three... You obviously disagree strongly on some important things with each other, but internally they're reasonably consistent. And in principle, you can mix and match a bit as well. Like you can. You'd say, oh, I quite like that answer and that one. You have to do more thinking probably if you're going to do that because they're deliberately consistent on their own terms. But those are three general models that that you have. And what I want to do just before I do the next little, now what are your thoughts and process them, is just to walk through how... The three of those models answer some of the big, answer the big questions about why does the earth look a different age when you look at science than it might look like the Bible means. That, that conflict, right? So the young earth creationist would do it in one of two ways. So the, one of the options, if you're a young earth person, you say, I think the earth, I think Genesis 6, 24 hour days, I think that's it. So how, if you say to a young earth person then, so how would you account for the fact that the earth looks so much older than that? in terms of scientific suggestions from dating of minerals and so on, how, would you, how do you do that? What do you do with dinosaurs, all, of that, all those questions? They would go one or two ways. Some of them would say, well, the, the, the mature earth. The, the earth is created to look old, just as a human being could be created to look the age of 30 and is actually only a few hours old. The earth is like that. So it's created with the appearance of age. That's one of the ways they would do it. And then the other model is to say, well, it's the, to do with the flood, that actually the, the effects of the global flood have changed scientific data to such an extent that you, you can't really go back behind the flood in time and project the same assumptions. So if, if dating of fossils indicates that the Earth is that old, that might be because a flood happened here, but to be honest, before this point, you just can't track back further what atoms and so on would do and as a result, it's distorting our reading of the scientific evidence. So yes, it looks like it's that old, but that's because the flood has just changed the landscape of science so much. Okay, so that would, those would be the two main ways that young earth creationists would do it. Okay? Old earth creationists, I guess I'm sure they're going to think this means they're better, have three different ways of doing it. But the, one or two of these might be a little bit unfamiliar. Um, so if you thought about it before, you may know of the previous two views, whereas one or two of these are more unusual perhaps. The main way that I think probably majority of people who would be old earth creationists would say, well, the days in Genesis 1 refer to indefinite periods of time. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, just a long indefinite period of time. So it doesn't, you don't have to try and squish every, you know, all of creation into a 24-hour week. Uh, sorry, 168-hour week. 24-hour uh, week, well, that's... I don't know what that would suggest about my subconscious, but anyway. Um, but the days in Genesis 1, they would say, they, you don't have to do that. In fact, this could last billions of years, because day just means like period. Okay? And that's a common view. Slightly less common, but influential in some Pentecostal circles, would be the gap theory, which is there is a gap of time, a huge gap of time, between Genesis 1.1 and Genesis 1.2. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That, they would say, billions of years ago. And the earth was without form and void, they would say that now picks up the story much, much more recently after there has been a fall from heaven by angelic beings. And that's obviously not in Genesis 1, but some people would say that's how you bridge the gap. And then the third view, which is even more unusual but might not be as weird as it sounds, 
is that the land, as I mentioned just a minute ago, the land in view in in Genesis 1 is not the whole world, it's actually the land of Israel. And the focus of Moses' book from Genesis to Deuteronomy is the land of Israel. And so the Eretz, which is Hebrew word for land or earth, is focusing on the land of Israel. So it doesn't actually tell you anything about the creation order in the rest of the earth at all. It's talking about God getting the land ready for human beings. So they've got three different ways that they would do that. And then, just to complete the picture before we talk again on our tables about it, there are evolutionary creationists. They would also have two main ways of answering their, if you might say, difficult questions. So if you're an evolutionist, your big question is, so what are you going to do about the creation of human beings? Because it says they're created in the image of God, and it talks about God making man from the dust of the earth. So what are you going to do with that? Right? It doesn't say he was created out of another animal. It says he's created out of the dust of the earth. So how do you account for the creation of people as distinct? And again, two different ways. There are more than this, but two main ones. There is the special creation view, which is, well, God didn't actually use evolution to create everything on earth. He used evolution to create all things except people. So evolution is a thing, and it happened. This view is a thing, and it happened, and it's very widespread, and that's why we have diversity like we do. But when it comes to human beings, we're different. We have been created uniquely without being descended along with other creatures. And then the, the other view, which would be kind of on a stronger footing scientifically, but weaker footing biblically, you could say, would say Neolithic farmers or the New Stone Age farmers, where basically God, Adam, the Adam and Eve story is a little bit more pictorial and a little bit less like this is actual physical dust. Dust could mean the stuff of the earth. It means, the, it means matter. And therefore they would say God chose two Neolithic farmers to receive his image and receive souls and become his receive his breath of life and become image bearers and that's the people we would now call Adam and Eve so now those are that's actually now we've gone from three views to sort of seven different ways of explaining you see it's kind of complicated um and you're probably going to go all right what I really want is I just want the answer um and obviously if there were just one clear answer then probably it would be that we wouldn't have seminars like this we just say this is the answer deal with it but I think there is stuff to think through, and we'll do a bit of that in the Q&A. But I wanted to give you a bit of a chance to process those. I wonder, maybe, Paul, if it was possible just to sort of, over the next three or four minutes, just to kind of tab through those previous four pages, perhaps particularly the first page with a table on it. And then just for you guys, you could have a look, or you could just ignore it completely, that's fine. And just talk on your table like, what do you think? What do you like? What do you not like? What do you go, what? And what do you go, mm-hmm. You know, or any other noises you may choose to make at this point. That's fine. Okay? So just have a little conversation. Maybe not the whole table together, actually. Probably twos, threes, fours, or whatever. What are you thinking about these things? What you, does that help clarify anything? Does it make it worse? Etc. Okay. So. Have any tables already... Um, this would be a good little experiment. Are any tables already broadly in, in consensus? You guys, are, we're together. We've, we've, we know where we are. And uh, anybody like that? Any tables going, we agree? No. Oh, some loud no's, in fact. What I enjoyed watching you all discussing was how many people were sort of, with their hands, and I'm quite a hand-expressive person, but they're sort of drawing how God did it. And it's mis- you can see people sort of gesturing. All this. It was just wonder drawing graphs and all that stuff. It's wonderful. Okay, um, now I'm going to just take a, a sideways step for a second. We will come back to this stuff. So I'll step for a second. I think one of the key issues 
for us when reading the beginning chapters of Genesis is for us to make sure that we are asking the right questions of the text and making sure that we're reading it to do the kind of thing that the writer was trying to do rather than the sort of thing that we would do if we were writing something like it. And that's actually a bit harder than it sounds because sometimes we might assume that a text was trying to achieve A, B, and C because that's what we do with that kind of writing. But in their day, they might have meant something quite different. They might have meant X, Y, and Z. And that's actually quite common. So if you take, the, take a more obvious example, the book of Revelation... Right? The writers of Revel- writer of Revelation is probably trying to communicate one kind of thing, and sometimes people have taken it to mean a very specific series, timeline of predictions being made into the future, when that's probably not the, well, the way that that kind of writing used to work in, in, in the ancient world. So we kind of can misunderstand what he's trying to do. Now, that can happen to a degree with Genesis. But before I go there, I want to show you a funny example of when that happens, which you will all agree with, I suspect. Right? Some of you even going... Well, Revelation, that's controversial. Genesis, that's tricky. Let's take one that isn't tricky. The woman in the Song of Songs does not look like this. (laughs) But if you take the book literally as a description of a woman, you do have, I'm afraid, your leg is like the Tower of David's, and your breasts are fawns, and there's honey dripping off your tongue. You see Winnie the Pooh standing under there with a bowl of honey. And there's pomegranates for temples and a flock of goats going down and all kinds of craziness and doves for eyes. Because actually the Hebrew of the book does say, your eyes are doves. And you and I know when we're reading, that's not the way that kind of writing works. Because love songs, don't you never tell a woman that she literally had doves for eyes. And if she did, you certainly wouldn't be singing a song about how beautiful she was. You'd be saying, you are an extremely freakish lady and I'm very scared or something like that. So, now we know that one because we have love songs in our culture, so we know how they work. The problem is that sometimes the Bible kind of writing, it might be different from any kind of writing that we use today. It might just be operating on a different level, like Revelation, I think, is like that. And so we have to learn how to read the text as they meant it to be read, and that's sometimes without the same questions and agendas that we might bring to a text like that if we had written it or as we read it. Now, I'm, this is, I'm going to be an eight-minute video now from a guy who is, is a professor in America called John Walton. And I think it's a really helpful video anyway, but I think what I find particularly helpful about it, watch out for the pictures of the cosmos that his son, who is an artist, has drawn and included in the, in the video. It's very helpful, I think. Just help you think, ah, oh. so when we read, because you and I read the Bible and we think, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and we think, right, that's the globe and the solar system and the Milky Way and the universe. They didn't know that. That's not, they wouldn't have categories for any of those things. And John Walton said, this just eight minutes on what they probably did and didn't mean when they talked about things like the world and things like that. I hope it will help you, and then we'll come back and try and apply it into some of this discussion. Okay? Uh, Genesis through ancient eyes. Uh, that's really our target. And there's some good reasons why we want to try to understand the Bible in that way. And so I want to start with that. I'll try to move quickly at the beginning because I always run out of time at the end. So I'll try to move more quickly at the beginning this time. Uh, For me, it always starts at biblical authority. That is, we need to know why it's so important that we are interested in what the Bible says. Uh, Because the Bible isn't just another book for us. It's a book that we view as God's word, God's revelation of himself, and it has authority. And therefore, it makes claims on us. And we take those claims seriously, even when we don't always agree or even understand what those claims might be. 
So we talk about the Bible having authority. Uh, in that process, and God chose this process, God's purposes are carried out through human purpose. That is, he decided to use human authors. Um, instead of um, communicating to each one of us personally, um, generation by generation, and giving his revealed word that way, uh, he had it written in a book, and so his authority was vested in human authors. So the author is the one that carries that authority given by God. Now, that's a really important link because that means that the authority is not connected to us as readers. The authority is connected to the author as the one who is writing that text. Now, in that sense, the, book, the books of the Bible are not written to us. Certainly, they're for us. God revealed himself to the world, and that includes us, but they're not written to us. It's not in our language. It's not in our culture. So the message transcends the culture. It's for everybody. But the message also is culture-bound. And that gives us some obligation as we try to read it because we have to take our place in his audience. Okay? He's communicating to an audience, not really to us. And we have to take our place in that audience by having the language translated for us, by having the culture translated for us. Okay, and that whole process is called background studies. It's what I spend an awful lot of time doing, trying to understand the ancient world and then translate that into something that people can read their Bibles and have a greater understanding of it. And that's extremely important when we work with the text of Genesis. So we have to see the world then the way that they saw the world. Okay, because God communicated to them, and they thought of the world in certain ways. Now, take something simple. Uh, when we think about the moon, we have certain ideas that come to our minds. We think about a rock uh, in orbit, uh, rotating, revolving, a certain distance away, uh, cr pitted with craters, uh, reflecting the light of the sun. All of these things come to our minds. We don't even have to bring them up. They're just there. That's part of our understanding of the moon. We have to remember, though, that in the ancient world, nobody knew any single one of those pieces of information. None of it. They, they didn't know it was in orbit. They had no idea what that would have been. They had no idea that it was reflecting the moon, they had no, or the sun. They had no idea of any of those pieces of information. They didn't know how far away it was. Okay? So they did not share our material picture of the moon. What was their material picture of the moon? They didn't have one. They didn't need one. They didn't live in a material world that they thought of in those terms. It was a light. They call it a light. They thought differently. And the Bible is written in that world and they thought of the world in very different terms. And therefore, when they talk about origins, they're going to be talking about origins in very different terms. So again, we have to try to join that audience. So here's the Egyptian cosmology, a schematic on the left and a more modern drawing provided by my son, whom I'm very proud of, uh, on the right. Now, the Egyptian cosmology, you can see, is peopled 
it's peopled with the gods. And so the lady in blue there, she's the sky, arching over. The stars are emblazoned on her underside there. Uh, the guy laying down at the bottom is the earth god, Geb. Uh, he and, he and uh, Nut used to be married, and they're still grasping for one another there. But the white guy in the middle is holding them apart. He's the air god, and he has to keep heaven and earth separated, though they long for one another. Uh, we've got the solar bark sailing across the waters above. Everybody in the ancient world believed there were waters above. It was part of their cosmic geography. And so we have all of these characters. The storm god is fighting the chaos monster Apophis. And so we have this picture of cosmology. Important thing to notice, of course, is that it is not a material picture. They didn't think they could pick up a rock and hit that guy in the shins. They, this is not what they thought the world was made of. But this is a much more important and vital picture for them because it told them about the world and what it truly was. It was a world where there were jurisdictions and authorities, all run by the gods. And so it was a world full of gods who did their jobs, and those jobs were reflected in the cosmos as they knew it. You can see then that they've got a very different way that they picture the cosmos. Now, of course, Israel doesn't have this kind of picture. They don't have all the variety of gods but they have the same structure of the cosmos. They just don't have the gods put in it. So there's something that's more like the Israelite cosmology. Okay, you still have the dome. You still have the waters above. The heavenly temple is at the top, and that, that beam of light shows the connection to the earthly temple. We have the surrounding cosmic waters. We have the pillars of the earth. Sheol is there dangling underneath, and Leviathan, the chaos creature, uh, spinning around down there. Uh, this is another one of my son's works. He finished Leviathan about 2.45 this morning. So uh, I'm happy to have this for the first public showing of this painting. But that uh, gives you a good idea of sort of an Israelite cosmology. Now, again, this one looks a little more material to us, okay? But that's only because we've portrayed it that way. Um, for them, it's still not so much the material world that's important. It's rather how it functions. But they have the gods pulled out of it, and that's an important distinction. So we have to see the world the way the Israelites saw the world. We also have to see the text the way the Israelites saw the text. After all, if it's communication between the author and the audience there, then their understanding is the one that counts. Their understanding is the one that counts. We don't really have a position where we can go reading modern science between the lines of the biblical text. That would not represent what they were thinking. That would not represent what the words they used meant. That would not represent anything that had authority. And if we're not reading the Bible to get authority from it, we're reading it for the wrong reason. So science does not belong read into that text. And they didn't have that science. And that's not what they meant. If we're going to read the Bible right, we have to be reading it through ancient eyes. So we have to try to see the text the way the ancient Israelites saw the text. Okay. I don't know what you make of that, um, but for me, it's, it's hugely helpful. Um, but if nothing else, those drawings are just great, because I think in showing you, ah, okay, some of the things that we believe about the world now are 
ancestors didn't believe about the world. They just didn't see it the same way. So even just the word earth or moon, I just think that's really helpful. So the next page is kind of, the next slide is sort of a, a summary, I suppose, of a, two or three key ideas there from that little video. Uh, cosmos as temple, that that's what the universe is for Israel. They believe this is where God lives. There are three stories which I mentioned on, I think, in my message on Sunday, the idea of the waters beneath the earth and the heavens, which you saw in that little picture as well. And the ancient writers, this I think is quite key when it comes to science and faith, ancient writers were not particularly trying to shape our scientific knowledge. That doesn't mean they didn't mention any facts that are, in terms of the material universe, they do. They do talk about the moon. But of course, as John Walton said, they think of it as a light. They don't, they don't know it's a piece of rock. So if he said, how did they make the, rock, the moon round, an Israelite would have stared at you and said, what are you talking about? It's not rock at all, it's a light. Because that's what they call it, and that's what it says in Genesis 1 that it is. They're not trying to shape our scientific knowledge, which is why they don't talk about dinosaurs. For instance, so many people say, what about dinosaurs? Where are dinosaurs in the Bible? And I, I always want to say, where is Australia? <laughs> right? To me, dinosaur and, dinosaurs in Australia are in very similar categories. They are things that the writers of the Bible just had no earthly idea were there, ever. Why would anyone who lived in ancient Israel, who saw the world like as one piece of land surrounded by water, with water underneath, why would they have cared that there was a place called Australia? Or that there were dinosaurs, whether recently or 65 million years ago. They weren't trying to shape our scientific... They're not trying to tell us that the moon is a light and therefore we should reject the findings of modern science that it's a rock. They just assumed it was. Do you see the difference? They're not trying to teach you that it is. In fact, if you took the, every affirmation contained within the Bible as requiring you to believe their scientific understanding, you would have to believe a number of slightly strange things. You'd have to believe that the seat of your emotions was in the bowels. Because that's what they do. You might have, you might have studied in Greek or Hebrew where they, they talk about, yeah, the emotion, I love you with all my bowels. I mean, you don't talk. In fact, they talk like that in this country just a few hundred years ago. There's a Puritan tract entitled Bowels Opened. <laughs> Genuinely. That, and, and they don't mean what you and I would mean if we said that. They mean your heart is crying out. A friend of mine's done a modern translation of it, and it's called Bowels Opened. It's just bizarre. Now, you and I don't think, therefore, that means we have to think emotions are rooted in the bowels. And we don't think we have to believe that the mustard seed is the smallest seed. We know that Jesus was talking to people who thought it was. So we accept that, even though we've sub- subsequently found an orchid seed is smaller. But that doesn't worry us, I imagine. Most of us are, oh, the Bible's crumbled because of the orchid seed's been found. We, we think, no, no, no. That's just, but we know what he means. He's talking to people who assume it is. And it would have been very weird to say, consider the orchid seed. They go, what's an orchid? Oh, this illustration has not worked well. I forgot for a moment I was God. I better start talking like I'm you. And then he says things like mustard seed. And they go, oh, yeah, we understand. Now, you see, we're laughing about that one. But actually, to a degree, the same principle applies when it comes to the moon and the scope, of the, the scope of the cosmos and perhaps the shape of the world and perhaps the pillars. If they believed the earth was supported by pillars, I don't think they're teaching us that it is, but that's kind of the way that people back then would see the world. Storehouses of snow. We don't believe in those now. And it doesn't worry us that we do. And I, I suspect that some of the clashes that appear to us to be between science and faith are sometimes because we are reading the Bible in a way that it isn't expecting to be read by the people who wrote it. And we have to be just hesitant about assuming the Bible is teaching things when actually all it's doing is assuming them in the context of an ancient world where everybody assumed it. 
And I think as soon as you say, as soon as you were okay saying an orchid seed smaller than a mustard seed, by the same token, and, and the earth isn't built on pillars, I think it's all right also to say, yeah, and the moon isn't a light. And that's, but they, for them, it wouldn't have made any sense to call it a spherical lump of rock reflecting the sun, so they didn't. And I think some of those principles can help us when we see clashes between scripture and science or that appear to be there. So that's me done for the kind of content I wanted to present. And I suspect there might be some people who want to come back with questions. I've sort of sketched out three models and said, I think Bible-believing Christians can and do believe all three of them. And there'll be people in this room who do believe all three of them. And as far as I know, there are actually people on the leadership team of Kings who believe all three of them as well. So this is not, a, this is not an issue about which I think and we think that we, sh- we have to take a line between Christians do this, they don't do that. Some people on all of those positions might do that. I don't think that's necessarily helpful. I think you have to come to a position you're comfortable with and you go, I, I see how that works. I'm okay with it. And many of us, frankly, will leave this evening going, do you know what? I don't know which one it is, but I don't much mind. I'm persuaded any of them could be right or that one might be right, that one might be right. I don't know, but I'm not worried about the fact that the Bible is going to crumble if I end up discovering something and or that science is a big hoax perpetrated by evil anti-Christian people. That actually I can, I can say, no, science is good. Praise God for dentistry. Amen. Anesthetics. <laughs> Hallelujah. Penicillin. Say, praise God for science, but it's a firm science. At the same time, I'm saying, praise God for scripture, which is the infallible word of God. And sometimes if it looks like they clash, I may not have the whole picture. And I may be assuming some things about this that aren't right or things about this that aren't right. And that's okay. Which I think is where many of us will probably end up. But because some of us will probably want to ask a bit more than that. We will have some questions. Why don't we just do a quick uh, process of that last little bit on our tables just for a couple of minutes. What do you think? Um, please, if you do want to start throwing fruit. Uh, actually, there is some fruit available, I think, isn't there, Charles? Plums? Yeah? They are actually extremely juicy plums. So they would go, if you do throw them at me, then they'll go squish. And, you know. um, but just maybe spend a couple of minutes just thinking that one through. And, uh, and then we'll take questions for up to half an hour, depending on how much appetite there is. Okay. Right. So we have... Um, I actually don't even know where they all are. So Malcolm is over there with a the microphone. Charles is over here. Neil is there. And I'm just going to leave them to go and find a question-asking person, and then we can take it from there. We've got about... We'll be done, by the way. Absolutely done by half nine. We'll finish the Q&A at 25 past, and then Charles has got one or two things to say before we go. So um, now we'll get time for a few. Yep, David Gale. Um, so can you talk about kind of... Obviously, with the modern discoveries that science has made it's almost as if science is so far ahead of the bible like far ahead because the bible doesn't change how do we defend the bible as christians without looking unintelligent essentially good okay how do we defend <laughs> how do we defend you see i would how do, i think the question was how, how do we defend the bible without looking unintelligent i would probably i don't really mind about looking unintelligent but i'd much i don't, I don't want to defend the bible and be unintelligent if you know what i mean like i think sometimes a dead guy coming back to life is going to look unintelligent to people. And I don't mind that, but I don't want to be stupid, which I know is probably what you mean. I think, in some ways, that's why the John Walton thing helps. And that's not just a John Walton thing, obviously. A lot of people say that. In many ways, we have to... We have to if you, Augustine said, like a long time back, a long time before there was any such 
person as Darwin or geology or whatever that we have now. Augustine said, if you get a, a, if a smart person who's not a believer hears a Christian defending the Bible by asserting things that the unbeliever knows aren't true, he's gonna, the Christian's going to make not just himself look wrong about that subject, he's going to also make himself look wrong about Scripture and the Gospel. And you've got to be very careful before doing that. So the first thing we have to do, I think, is to go back to the text and say, is this actually affirming something that I've just assumed because of my cosmic geography? A classic example would be the debate kicked off by Nicholas Copernicus in the 16th century about the sun and the earth, which is going around what? I don't think any of us today would struggle with the idea that the earth goes around the sun, but 500 years ago, our forefathers really, really would have. Many of them would have. Many of them would have seriously fallen out about it because they were... They were reading scripture thinking this is what it affirms. And I think subsequently they went, is it? Is it though? And that was the debate. And then they said, actually, I don't think it's affirming it. It may be assuming something a bit like that, but I don't think it's teaching us that. And in many ways, I think the wise course of action is to go back to the text and say, is this, does this constrain me to believe that the scientific setup that they held to is, is correct in every particular, or is it like, and this is why I use the orchid seed, mustard seed thing, is it just something that most of us would go, well, that from their point of view, as a text that speaks into their world, that's true. But given things that we now know, that would actually not be the best way of making that point. But that's okay. And we're not in doing it saying the Bible is wrong. We're actually saying the Bible is very effective communication. Because if you say billions or dinosaurs or Australia to a Bronze Age peasant, they are going to stare at you as if you have three heads. It doesn't actually help them. So I think that would be the start. And to be honest, the, the difficulty isn't the principle. The difficulty is now which bits go in that category of things that might not be taught then, which I think is another whole question. But I think that principle, I think Augustine's really good on it. The funny thing is, Augustine says that and then goes on this lengthy rant about how stupid it is to believe in Australia. And it's really, it's really, you read it and you think, this is kind of what you were just telling. Anyway, you, if you read the City of God, you'll see. But the point is, Christians have been thinking about that for long before modern science was a thing. And I find that encouraging. It's not, just a, it's not a cop-out um, because of modern science or anything like that. Does that help answer the question? Okay, great. Next one. Okay. Hi. Um, so you said that there's no description of dinosaurs or no di- dinosaurs mentioned in the Bible. But in the book of Job, it mentions Behemoth and Leviathan. It does. Footnotes of uh, NIV say that Behemoth is an elephant. But actually it's a description of a brontosaur or, an, or another large dinosaur. Also, the Leviathan is a description of a giant um, dinosaur crocodile. Um, so there are dinosaur descriptions in there. Yeah, so if dinosaurs the, hadn't just, um, lived at the same time, how would they have been able to describe them? The other point is in the video, um, the only evidence of how ancient cultures, um, what ancient cultures believed, was the picture of the Egyptian gods. That would have been a post-flood uh, culture and not uh, what people at the beginning of uh, creation that's true. Yes, that, okay, so two questions there. So the, on the second question, that's absolutely true. But of course, Moses, um, and I, I use the word Moses quite, like I'm assuming Moses wrote the substance of the Pentateuch, even though he didn't write every last word because he was dead at the end of it. Um, and that's being written, of course, a long time after the flood. So the point is the people for whom this text is written, admittedly, it preserves, obviously, traditions that go a long way back. But the text, as we have it, was written at the very earliest 
about 1400 BC, maybe 1280 in its original form, and probably in the form we have it now with the death of Moses and everything, even later than that. So I think that's, you're right, the, the original event is before the flood, but the text is written, and the worldview of the readers, which is what, what matters, I think, is significantly after the flood. When it comes to dinosaurs, to be honest, I don't know what those creatures in Job are. I mean, the footnotes in Bibles are hilarious. If you've ever looked, the translations, even in this room that we have now, would come up with the most bizarre suggestions. I agree with you. That I think when something says, this is an elephant, somebody goes, no, and then another Bible goes, this is a hippopotamus, and you go... That does not sound like a hippopotamus. If you don't know what we're talking about, by the way, long sections in, of poetry in the end of Job describe two gigantic, very scary creatures that God says, I made this creature, and therefore, Job, you can't quibble with me about the way the world is and why I allow suffering sometimes. Um, but as to what exactly those creatures are, we simply don't know. They don't, they don't fit the exact portrait of a brontosaurus or a tyrannosaurus rex or a crocodile or a hippo or an elephant or any of the creatures that I've seen mentioned to them. And I think the reason is that, even as you saw in the, in the drawing actually, but Leviathan and the sea monsters were a huge part of the ancient world's cosmic geography. And I suspect that that's what we're talking about. And almost ear dragons. I think it's almost a little bit like that. And that's, I don't think in doing that in a poetic book... In a discussion between God and Job, I don't think the affirmation of what particular species of animal this is especially matters, actually. I think it's a, a statement of divine sovereignty over all things, including the scariest things that Job is frightened of. But people can disagree on that, and, like, and, and there would be. Again, if you take a young earth position, you might, not everyone does, but you might well say, I think actually a dinosaur probably is the best explanation for that text, and that's fine. I, just, I personally don't take that view, but it's not... I don't think it's a, a problem for reading scripture. Um, so, but I just think it's probably something about which we're going to have to remain agnostic-ish because none of the descriptions quite fit as well as we might like them to, in my opinion, anyway. Malcolm, you got a question over there? Hi. Um, there seems to be quite an obvious bias um, in the media and in education towards evolution and um, uh, old earthism. Um, why do you think that is? Because it seems to be taught as fact rather than theory in schools. Mm. You know, that dinosaurs did exist millions of years ago and we came from apes. Um, but you never really see um, young earth creationists, scientists having yeah. a voice in media or for education. They seem to be si- um, either silenced yeah. or, or laughed off the scene. Um, what do you think sort of drives that clear agenda through everything that we... Yeah, it's a good question. Through, through, ...through our culture and society? It's a good question, and to be honest, if we put, we've got this up slide up already, Paul knew we were going there. In some ways, it depends where you stand as to how you account for it, if you see what I mean. So I think if you're a young earth creationist, you'll probably say this is partly because this is one of those clear areas where scripture conflicts with modern atheism, and if, you, if people move a yard on, in the direction of young earth creationism, you kind of have to include God in the picture, and no one wants to do that. So I think that's if you're a young earth person. If you're an old earth or an evolutionary person even, you'll probably say, well, we think it's because the balance of evidence suggests that that's just more likely to be true based, if you take, if you don't look at science as if to say, did God do this miraculously, but instead say, how old does this rock look like it was, uh, or whatever, and what methods might we have for establishing it, that it looks more likely, and therefore there's not a bias as much as there's just a an attempt to look at the evidence reasonably open-handedly. Now, personally, I don't think it's ever possible to do any kind of study without some degree of bias. I don't think that's, I don't think that's a thing. I don't think any of us do it. Christians don't. I, I don't want to do it. And I don't think people who are not Christians do either. But I think what you can do is when you study in community and you submit 
peer-reviewed proposals and scientific literature to say, well, this, is, this evidence suggests that that is wrong. And the line I heard that helped me was many years ago, somebody said, if we ever found a rabbit in the fossils of the Cambrian explosion, or the pre-Cambrian, just before the Cambrian explosion, we would know evolution and all of our timelines were utterly wrong. In other words, they're saying, if there was a, a fossil of the wrong type of animal at the wrong place, the whole theory would crumble because everyone would realize we'd messed it up. And I think in a way, the best we can do is to say, then what science does, of course, is say it makes predictions and says, we can't be certain this is true. This, of course, this is a theory in the sense that it's a, an explanatory story for something. But our best way of telling whether it's true or not is to say, if our theory's right, we would expect people to find this, 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 and this in there, 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 and there, and then to see if it does. I think that's probably that sort of honesty, if you like, an open-ended, well, this could be disproved by subsequent data, and many scientific theories are. Um, I think that's the best we have. I think uh, if we got, I'm sure a number of people who work in the sciences in the room who would say, yeah, that's, w- that's what we have to do. We, we make scientific predictions, and if they're wrong, we have to change the theory. And I think that's what we, that's what we do. So I, personally, I would lean more to, I don't think it's bias as much as it's, our, it's the best consensus of a community looking at the evidence. And I think some of that evidence, particularly on rock dating, to me is very convincing. Um, and so it's not something that would particularly worry me as, as from a level of bias but I do take the point that of course it is quite a it's quite a one-sided picture but I think so what really you take of that will obviously depend on which of those three camps you're in I think next one okay Malcolm hi um, I just have a question uh, for a previous homo species actually that if God made us in his image um, why and when did he make Neanderthals and other homo um, species um, who have been discovered uh, the skeletal systems have been discovered to have brains yeah. a third of the size smaller than modern-day humans. Yeah, and actually all... Interesting, so this is a question about other... I'll call them hominins, if I may, like uh, just basically other human-like creatures that are either ancestors or similar to human beings. What do we make of those creatures? Or some would even say people. Um, and there's a whole raft of them, obviously, and some of us would have been to the cave paintings in southern France and seen the sort of all the art and dated back this far or whatever. Now, obviously, if you take a young earth view, you say those creatures are not distinct from humanity. We're either basically talking about an ape-like creature or we're talking about an, an early human and some of the examples of skulls may be deformities or whatever. So if you're a young earth view, you're going to go that way. If you're old earth or evolutionary creationist, you're probably going to say, no, these are... Uh, creatures who would have looked somewhat like us but would have had smaller heads would have been more bent over wouldn't have been as fast wouldn't have been as in, anything like as intelligent probably didn't have language but may have had some other of our early features may have been able to make tools and so on and and there would be a whole range from australopithecus which is about reckoned at about two million bc right the way through so sort of homo habilis and then into neanderthal man and cro-magnon man and so on and that whole journey basically the two people on the right would be saying whether they believe they are evolutionarily connected to us, as these guys would, or not, as the middle would, they'd say they are real creatures. And God created them as he created orangutans and bonobos and us and all numbers of other creatures. And there's nothing endemically more, there's nothing in them that is less worthy of being created than a puffin or an anything. You know what I mean? There's, God made loads of things and God likes stuff. And some of those things have died out. Like I think that's how... On both sides here, people would answer. So again, it's going to depend which camp you're in. Next one, who's got Neil? If the Bible is meant to be taken into 
the context we're living in, doesn't that make it subject to different interpretation? And then how do we know if our interpretation of the Bible is correct? Ah, what a great question. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly the issue. Is that the end of the question? I'm, I wanted to applaud because I like the question. But... Oh. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay. I, I think there, in some ways, we have the mirror image of the question that our friend here was asking about science. So actually, we have exactly the same question about Scripture. The method of testing is different, but exactly the same thing happens, doesn't it? Where you say, at the moment, our best guess of how... You see, there was a time when we didn't know any of those things about what the ancient world believed when they said the word moon. So we might not have noticed, even, that when it said light, it meant something different from what we mean by the moon. But as you discover more, and this happens a lot in, my field is New Testament studies, so I know more about that, but where we discover new manuscripts of things and new documents that make us think, oh, actually, we thought that word meant this, but now there's a lot of evidence that actually in that culture it meant something like this, which means that the interpretation has to, if I can use this word not loadedly, evolve with discovery. And I think it, and it does. I think human beings, we're intended to, to study and to in that sense, develop our knowledge and understanding. And so if you were to read, a, the, probably, if you've got a copy of the Bible with you today and it's a modern translation, it will have corrections to older translations because we've discovered things about the original world that the Bible's written in that have helped us understand it a bit better. So in a sense, we're always doing that in any field. We're saying this is, this is provisional. And therefore, we need to keep studying and find out if we're right. Now, I think the, the, the big sort of but this one never changes thing is to say that actually, in, for all of those ups and downs, all of the essential truths of Christianity, and by that I mean everything that you could find in any creed, and I would argue any confession of the church that I've ever read, is not in question with any of this stuff. I, I, don't, think, I don't think there's a single thing on any of these screens which would, affect, which would say that if that Christian doctrine is, might be wrong because we've discovered this fossil or whatever, or this genetic information. So I think in a sense, although we're saying, well, we might be wrong, but, of course, the longer the church goes on, guided by the Spirit, and the longer the Word of God stands, the le- we're going to say, well, it's extremely unlikely that anything's going to under- undermine that. And I think there might be incidental things, and there sometimes are. Manuscript evidence, scientific findings, archaeology sometimes. Oh, actually, when they meant this, they, that was the practice back then, not this. That happens a bit sometimes. And it generally just illuminates a story and helps us see it in a new way. Um, it doesn't say, oh, and that Christian doctrine now crumbles because we found out this thing. In my experience, and I've done quite a lot of it, that's, that's simply not the outcome when we sift it. So we do need to keep learning. But I think the essential, all of the core of a Christian faith is not under threat from this stuff, in my view. I, I just don't, again, go back to the orchid seed. Like, it's, to me, it is like that. It's like, that parable means exactly what it means, whether an orchid seed's smaller or not. I don't, that's not the issue for me. Um, and, but the truth of the parable is still obviously powerfully there, no matter what. So that's how I would come at that. I think there is a, an evolving learning taking place, but the core basis of Christianity remain and always have, and I think always will. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words won't pass away. I, I, don't, I don't worry that we're going to find something, oh no, and that proves the resurrection's wrong. It just doesn't, do you see what I mean? I, but I think sometimes we might go, we'd always assumed it meant this, and it turns out it actually may have meant that. That's okay, I think. Is that all right? Is a... Yeah. Not just like creation, but 
like life in general? How do you know if you're interpreting it in the right way? Yeah, does, sure. Does that make sense? Um, that's a huge. Uh, that's a huge question, with of which we could. I'll try and do a very a very brief version. I think there are there's four checks and balances that I tend to encourage people to use if they're reading something. They think I think it means this. Um, the first one is. I call them all humility, right? Humility towards orthodoxy is the first one, which is, first of all, is this the way the church has generally read this? And I think if I've got 2,000 years of history on my side, yeah, that's what the church thinks it means. That's a very strong vote and support, I think, because they had the Holy Spirit as well. I then talk about humility towards Catholicity, which is a sense of, I now want to be humble towards all of my brothers and sisters in the world today and see how they read it. And if they agree, and the church that's died agree, then I'm almost certain I'm right almost before I've done the other two. The third is humility towards, sorry, orthodoxy, Catholicity, or the, the universal church. Scholarship is the third one, which is really what this is doing, which is saying, oh, John Walton knows a lot about background studies. He can read a lot of ancient languages, and I can't. And he's studied them for 30 years in universities with a lot of resources. And he's concluded there are a lot of parallels here, which is interesting. And so it's an approach to going to scholars and saying, thanks to you, I have a Bible in English, so you... Help me, is there anything that you know that I might not know? And that approach of humility towards scholarship. And again, if there's a consensus there, that helps. And then the fourth one, which might sound like a bit of pulling, a bit of a trump card, but to me it matters, is actually humility towards eldership or humility towards pastors. Not because the pastors must be right, but because having done the other three things, if you say, well, I still don't know. I don't understand whether that scholar's right or that scholar's right. I don't know what the early church said about blah, blah, blah. That actually, for most of us, God has put in place pastors and teachers, to help us with things like that when we're not sure. And having an attitude where you go, am I right about this? Is this just me? Is Sometimes you're not going to go back and read Oregon and Augustine, and you're not going to read all these scholars to find out. You're going to say, I don't have time for that. I have a job. Um, but can you tell me, is this roughly within the mainstream or not? And I think that's those four postures of humility towards orthodoxy, Catholicity, I call it, scholarship and eldership or pastors, I think can really help. And if the four of them line up, then you're almost certainly right. And please don't ask me what happens if they don't. B, sorry, is that, is that where we are now? Yeah, great. Um, two questions, but you can pick one if you want. Um, what do you think how old the Earth is and why? And how about the dinosaurs? Did they miss about? I mean... And how, how, what did you say how about the dinosaurs? How old were the dinosaurs? No, no, that's a, how old the Earth is. Yeah. What do you think about it, um, yeah. personally? And also, how about dinosaurs? Because clearly they existed. Yeah. Did they miss the boat? What happened? Did they miss the boat? <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard that line, and I will probably quote it for the rest of my life, B. That is wonderful. Um, okay, so as is, pr as is probably obvious, I mean, I, I can't hide forever, right? As is probably obvious, I think the earth is old, but that doesn't mean I think you should or must. But I do. Um, and I've functioned as if the earth is 4.6 billion years old. And that's the assumption undergirding. It's part of a big framework that you have to form and you have to go somewhere. And in the end, I looked a lot at it and that's where I've landed. And others have looked at it a lot and landed somewhere else. So for me, the earth is 4.6 billion years old. Life is 3.8 billion years old. A whole bunch of species were once alive, in my view, that are not now. And the dinosaurs were probably wiped out by a meteorite, like, as I understand it, scientific consensus is to happen. So... In my view, and this is not gospel truth, right? This is with all the caveats in place. In my view, humans and dinosaurs didn't coexist. And we missed each other by 65 million years. Um, 
And I, so I believe that the flood is a regional Mesopotamian thing and doesn't, isn't the explanation for the dinosaurs. That's just my personal view, though. And that wouldn't be a view that's shared even by all the pastors at King's. So please don't hear we're like, King's church believes. I mean, that's not what this is. But, but I have to, in the end, I've managed to get from 8 o'clock until 9.15 without saying that. Um, so a number of you had rumbled it anyway. But so, so that's, where, that's where I am. And I'm actually in the, I'm actually in the right-hand column myself um, with some modifications nearer the bottom for those who would otherwise get a wonder. Okay? Hetty. Hetty for you. <laughs> I've, I've also got two questions. Oh, this, does anybody think this is unacceptable? And all of these people uh, just gradually <laughs> ramping up the numbers of questions. The, the first one is, on Sunday, you mentioned that the only other place that the ark is mentioned is in the story of Moses. Yeah. But then I had been reading that day about the ark of the Co- covenant. Yeah. So. Yeah. I wanted to know about that. Yes. The second question is, um, when God created man, how was the earth populated? And yeah. was it populated by those, those two people? And right. okay. the races, how were good the races? Good question. Both good questions. Okay. So I'm going to trust the microphone people to orb and find, the, find others because we've only got about 10 minutes left. Um, the, the thing I said on Sunday about the ark, I'm, I was probably, in one of the meetings, I, rem- I know afterwards someone mentioned it, I wasn't very clear. It's the Hebrew word, tebor, for ark, which is the one that was only found elsewhere. The English word ark is used lots of times in the Old Testament for the ark of the covenant, but that's a different Hebrew word. Um, so that probably, I wasn't very clear when, I think the 9.30 meeting here, I realized afterwards, oh, that wasn't as clear as it should have been. Um, and how's the earth populated? Well, you see, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Down here at the bottom, you see, I, I would go with other humans, yes. So I think... When Cain and Abel are happening, I think there are other people around. I think there's a few clues. Cain wants to kill Abel out in the open fields because he's worried about being spotted. They're worried about brothers and sisters chasing them down and maybe killing them. He goes off and gets married. It never, you can't prove it, but in my opinion, it's easier to make sense of some of those bits of the story if you assume that there are other people as well. Um, that's just my view. Again, that's not, I hope the caveat's not getting boring, but that's not a king's view or anything. It's just that would be my take. So I think there was a much larger human population than the ones we read about in the early chapters of Genesis, because that's the writer's main concern. Um, But that's not the only way of doing it. And obviously, on a young earth creation account, then yes, all human beings are biologically descended from that one couple, Adam and Eve. And it is a brother and sister thing in the early generations. Um, So it kind of, again, like with all of this, it depends which column you're in. Okay? Yeah, sorry. Um, Kind of linked. Um, how do we reconcile the kind of Adam and Eve and the fall and then the, imp, the kind of sin coming into the world yeah. with these three different views? Okay. Um, Adam and Eve and the fall and youngest creation, no problem, right? That's the easiest one. You go, well, there was no such thing as a human being and then God made them and then a few, whatever, days later perhaps, not long later, it all went wrong and sin and death of all things entered the world there. So that's the easiest, in a way, that's the easiest one to square. Old earth creation, you go, okay, so animals die and plants die before the fall and human beings don't. And therefore sin and death enter the world. But when it says death, it doesn't mean the death of anything. It means the death of human beings. And that's actually the same way you do it if you're an evolutionary creationist. You say the same. You say death has actually been in the world. Both of these two agree that death has been in the world a, a lot longer than human beings have. Um, and, and of course, young earth creations will probably say it's true of plants anyway. Because as soon as you say, now go and eat the plant, and cows are going, all right. And then they go, the grass is going, ah! You know, it's, so in some ways, there's some death in that sense. 
I had a weird debate, actually in this very building, it was in the back office out there, while I was doing a leadership training course, about whether or not grass dies when you eat it. It was surreal. It lasted a long time. The guy who debated me is a pastor of another church in London now, and sometimes he just texts me and goes, by the way, it does die. He's just, uh, or it doesn't die, or something. I can't remember who was, anyway, it was something like that. So the, these guys would say plants die before the fall. These guys would say animals do, but humans don't. And I, I actually think that's, that's really important. The human death, and the point that Paul makes is, when, has death entered the world through Adam's sin, and therefore death spread to all men, because all sinned. He's, when he says death, he means humans being separated from God and dying. And of course, God says, on the day you eat of it, you will die, but they don't actually physically drop dead for another 900 years, according to the biblical chronology. So clearly, whatever death is, it doesn't mean just stopping in your tracks and going into the ground. It means a separation from God. So that's how I would tend to read it more over here. Is that? Yeah? Okay. Um, I was just wondering, um, is God subject to the passage of time as we understand it? And how does that fit with three theories that seem to be based a lot mm. on age and time. Yeah, I don't... I, funny enough, I was talking a long time at lunch with someone about this. Wasn't I, Tarek? Where has he gone? <laughs> you rapscallion. Um, but uh, I, I, I wouldn't... I certainly wouldn't say God is subject to in the sense that it's out of his control. But I actually think that given that we are in time and all of the objects we're talking about measuring are in time, whether they're fossils or dead things or rocks, are in time. In some ways, the fact that we might think of God as outside time doesn't really matter. I think the one group of people of these three who would say, this, that matters for my view, is the guys in the middle who might say, well, from God's perspective, it was a day, but from our perspective, it was millions of years. And if that's the view you take, then that might be an argument in favor, and it sometimes is. And the other two accounts, it probably doesn't particularly matter. You might say, yeah, God is outside time, before time, but in the end, we're still measuring rocks and counting things and looking at genes and doing that irrespective of that. So probably wouldn't make as much difference as all that. Okay, who else? Have we got have We got one more over there. Okay. Um, my question is around sort of picking and choosing um, scientific explanations for the Bible. So how is it that with Genesis, we're quite open to using science to explain some of the stuff there. But when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, yeah. we simply accept sort of hands up that, he died and yeah. rose from the dead. So where do we draw the line between Great question. science and science? That's a really good question. So, if you, so let's say the big, a big strike against one of the things I've said is, hang on, if you're over here, you go, oh, we've got to fit that to fit with science. What's to say you're not going to do that with the resurrection or with the exodus or the parting of the Red Sea or goodness knows what else? Um, and it's a really important question. I think the, the crucial difference is that in the case of... Well, there, I think there are actually two big differences. One of them is that... To me, it is not clear that the Bible teaches that the earth is 6,000 years old. That's in the end. I think it is clear that the Bible teaches that Jesus bodily rose from the dead and that the Red Sea parted and that even the sun stopped setting in the sky and all kinds of things that would be miraculous, that dead people got out of their coffins and started walking around, Lazarus came out. I think all of those are really clear. I don't think it's to me, I don't think the Bible, the Bible never says, for instance, the earth is N thousand years old. That's a conclusion we, we draw. And it might be a right one, but it doesn't ever come out and state it. So that's one of the differences. But the bigger difference, in a way, is that there is, almost by definition, no scientific evidence 
for or against the resurrection of Jesus because it's just not that kind of an event. We're not talking about the age of rocks or the the death of animals or the normal biological processes and trying to figure them out. We're talking about an event that almost by definition is a non-scientific event. It's a supernatural event. It's an event dead people don't rise, and we all know that. And virgins don't give birth, and we all know that. And in some ways, that's why Christianity is a big deal. Not because we've got a scientific explanation of it, but because we don't. So in many ways, I think I would put the miracle stories in the Gospels, for instance, and the Exodus and so on, in a totally different category to questions about the age of the earth. Um, Because one of them is subject to scientific processes, and the other one simply even, no matter what you found in the world, you would never have scientific evidence against the resurrection. It's just not that kind of an event. And to me, that makes it quite a stark difference. So I don't, personally, I don't even worry. And you probably, if you heard my, my preaching much, you'll know I'm continually banging on about these massive miracles like the Exodus and so on. Some of you are going, oh, it's not the Exodus again. Um, and the flood, and you know, I'm talking about big miracles. I affirm those things all the time and think they're massive to biblical theology, vital to, in many ways, to an evangelical faith. But it doesn't worry me at all. I'm going to lose them if I, if I see an integration of science and faith. And that's back to what the text is actually trying to say. I am not persuaded that the writer of Genesis 1 was trying to tell me the earth was this many years old. I am persuaded the writer of Exodus was trying to tell me they did walk out of Egypt through the waters on both sides and then the waters came down and squashed Pharaoh and then Jesus rose from the dead. I, I think that's definitely what the text is saying and that's the, for me that's the difference. Does that help? Great. Great, okay. One more, okay. We've got one more. So Malcolm, Malcolm is doing a little... In fact, can you just do that again for everybody to see? Because it's not very often you see Malcolm. Malcolm can't do a shimmy. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> Andrew, on Sunday, 9.30, you mentioned something that left me an image which I'm trying to get rid of since Sunday. I keep seeing Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe? giants. Ah, yes. And I'm trying to block Russell Crowe out. So the Nephilim. I'm hoping you'll solve that for me. I really thought I was going to get away without mentioning the Nephilim. Okay. Is that what you mean, yeah? So if you've seen the Flood movie, that's the Russell Crowe, the Noah movie. Okay. In 60 seconds, right? Genesis 6, 1 to, 1 to 6 or 7, talks about these, the sons of God going into the, sons of me, the daughters of men and the off, having offspring, it would seem, of the giants or the Nephilim. The, in Greek, it's hoi gigantes, which is the, the, just the giant ones. And there are basically three things you can do with that weird language, sons of God having sex with daughters of men. Some people say that's the sons of Cain having sex with the daughters of Seth. Right? Or, or vice versa, actually, the sons of Seth having sex with the daughters of Cain. But it's human intermarriage between the godly line and non. I don't think that's what the early Jewish writers thought it meant, so I don't think it means that, but it might be right. The second explanation is the sons of God are kings, and the daughters of men are their harems. And so it's referring to polygamy, like Lamech in Genesis 4, and that's the problem. Again, the challenge for me is that that's not how the Jews and early Christians seem to interpret that story. The weirdest answer which I personally think is the right one, even though it's definitely the weirdest, is that it is actually the sons of God are angels and the daughters of men are human women. It's the strangest one, and it's the one that weirds me out the most. And I'm sorry about the image, brother. (laughs) I really am. But I think it's right. My guess is it's right, because when you read the intertestamental Jewish writings, which are Jewish writings between the Old and New Testaments, and even if you read Jude and some of the early Christian writings with this in mind, you get the sense that they are actually talking about angels and not just kings 
And so my view, as bizarre as it is, is that we are talking about angel sex. And I'm very sorry that that phrase had to even be said out loud. And what, fitting, what more fitting way could there be to conclude an evening like this? But that's what I think. Russell Crowe had nothing to do with it, and they certainly weren't these big rock monsters. But if you spend much time reading a book like One Enoch, and sadly, because for my PhD I had to, it's extremely boring, you'll find that there was a lot of Jewish speculation about creatures like that, and a lot of it's pretty weird. And I think some, in that particular story, something very weird is happening, and thank God it will never happen again. <laughs>